Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, my guest is witch, artist and author, Susan Demeter, who joined me to talk about her new book, Cosmic Witch, Magic, Witchcraft and the Supernatural. Susan's writing and research explores a wide range of themes connected to her lifelong interest in exceptional human experiences, nature, mysteries and magic. Cosmic Witch is both a guide to the history and practices of witchcraft, as well as a memoir of Susan's own experiences of the supernatural and the role they played in her own path to becoming a witch. In the interview, we talk about these aspects of the book and the relationship between magic and the supernatural. We also discuss the fascinating research and experiment explored in Susan's next book, the second volume of Cosmic Witch, titled Conjuring UFOs. This was a really fun and interesting chat. Enjoy! Susan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me as a guest tonight. Not at all. I really enjoyed your book, Cosmic Witch. What inspired you to write this work? Oh, well, it, it's, gosh, I guess the first thing that I can say is that I was very, very fortunate to find a publisher, uh, my publisher, Claudia from Leditori here in Italy, that really believed in the project. Um, I think the first book that I probably would have written would have been just like a, a UFO book, a straight up UFO book. But talking to Claudio, um, he became very interested in my spirituality. And uh, he suggested, well, why don't you talk, you know, write a book about how you have combined your spirituality with your, your UFO research. And basically, that's how Cosmic Witch was born. Uh, a lot of it is, is um, autobiographical, autobiographical. And, uh, and it's a very different take, I think, um, than one might suspect uh, with a witch's book. Uh, being that it's witches and and sort of a combination with UFOs, so that's that's basically how it was born through some synchronicity and uh, and I guess some cosmic magic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I mean I really liked the the blending of those two themes in in the book. It was it's not something that I've really read before. And, and in the book, you start with your your early life in Canada and. I, there's enough in that first chapter, I think, for us to talk about in this episode. It seems like a lot was happening. And you describe how one of those events, uh, it felt like an initiation. And then from that point onwards, there are other events that felt like initiations um, in, in your life growing up. Can you just talk a little bit about, about that period? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, certainly at the time, I, I wouldn't have, have viewed these things as initiations. But later, as a young adult, I, I came to realize that um, I had a childhood that was filled with a lot of supernatural and paranormal phenomena from a very young age. Um, and in the beginning, as a child, I really thought that uh, I, I was either living in a haunted house or, or I was being pestered by ghosts. I guess because my only real exposure to 
supernatural ideas and themes was maybe through Scooby-Doo or something as a child. So <laughs> I really thought that these little beings that I, I, I was seeing were in fact ghosts. Um, and they would, sometimes they, they, I would be very curious about them. At other times I was very frightened of these experiences of these little beings. Um, and I do write about that in the book. Uh, and that sort of, um, for me, was uh, was an initiated, initiatory experience um, in that it opened my mind up to the idea that there is this other realm, that there is a magical realm that is outside, perhaps, of our consensus reality, and that that allowed me to um, uh, grow my own sort of spirituality and, and become the cosmic witch that I am today. So these experiences, um, I'll, I'll describe some of them. Uh, one that I talk about in the book is how my parents uh, were looking to upgrade their home that we were living in at the time. My, my mother was pregnant with my younger sister, and they were looking to buy a, a larger home for their uh, growing family. And so we went out to this new build in this area of Toronto, um, which they're all sort of at the time it was a new subdivision. So these were all brand new homes. And, uh, and, and we went in to look at one of them and I remembered like being really excited. It was much bigger than the house we had been living in. And there was one room and in the room there was like skylights. And I thought, Oh, this has got to, this got to be my bedroom. I was so excited that uh, we might be living in this house. And I was already picking out my room with these skylights and that. And I remember being really excited and turning around and seeing this little being, this little man who I call an impossible man, uh, standing there and looking at me rather sternly. And it was so shocking. And even as a child, I knew that this little being really shouldn't be there that that something was really wrong that this wasn't real this wasn't but it was real and I remember at the time all of a sudden being so shocked by this that I thought I kind of really don't want to live here anymore and uh, I, I was able to talk to my parents about this later on in life and they and my mom actually remembered the incident she said I remember going and looking at that place and how happy you are and then all of a sudden your whole demeanor changed and you were like frightened and concerned and such. And these types of little beings, um, they, I, I saw them throughout childhood at various points. Uh, occasionally they would really frighten me. Uh, I would see them sitting at the edge of my bed. Like this wasn't every single night, but this, this would happen with enough frequency that, that it was really somewhat, you know, startling and frightening and it, 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 this is not the type of thing either that you can go and just discuss with your friends at school because it's so weird and you know and even as a child you know that that there's these taboos about talking about these things people think you're crazy they'll you know so i i really didn't have anyone to talk to about what was happening with this and uh and one time I, I was so startled and so frightened and I, and I used to sleep with my little stuffed animals kind of, I would set them a, around the bed 
kind of like as if like little guardian, little teddy bears and things. And I was really frightened. And I saw this, this little being that was looked very maniacal and not friendly at all. And I was scared. And I remember closing my eyes and reopening my eyes. And it was still there. And then all of a sudden, it was like this large talking wolf appeared and scared this little being away. And I was, you know, oh, this, this is my guardian, this large wolf. And, uh, and, and that, that's pretty much where it stood with these strange experiences that I was having as a child. Later on, as, a, as when I was in my teenagehood and, and in my early adulthood, and I started studying psychology, I, I figured that the wolf was a creation for myself, that I had created this scenario to, to sort of scare away the bad little beings and that I, I truly was the wolf. And so that's kind of where it sat. Um, as a teenager, I was doing normal kind of, I guess, I guess normal kind of teenage things. I was, I started getting really interested in tarot and, and astrology and, and all this other kind of fun occult stuff. Um, you know, but I wasn't having the same level of experience as I, I did as a little kid, as a child. Um, and so I kind of put that aside until I, I was about age 23 when I saw a UFO, the first one that I can really recall, that um, I, I saw with another person. I had another witness, which was my brother-in-law. And I saw this red glowing orb in the sky and it was so strange and so out of, again, out of the norm um, that it, it really, you know, it, it took me into this completely different mindset of thinking. Because at this age, when I was in my early 20s, I, I would recall some of the stuff that happened to me as a kid and I would think, well, you know, I'm a very imaginative person. I'm a very creative person. Maybe some of this was imagined or dreamed up or, you know, but having that experience then as an adult, I I couldn't just discount it. And so I was at that point, I started thinking back on all these childhood experiences and then reorienting them in my mind, thinking, well, maybe these weren't imaginal little ghosts, maybe this was something to do with what I was now seeing in the sky. And so that was the, these experiences. And because they're so out of the norm, uh, I call them initiations because initiations not only are an invitation and an opening into another uh, way of being, mm. but they can also be very painful, you know, um, and having experiences like this, uh, and really not knowing who to talk to about them. I mean, when these this was happening, this was pre-internet age, you know, it wasn't like I could just go and, and type in UFO or whatever and find helpful groups or investigators. I, I did go to the library and I, I f took out some UFO books and I found QFOS in the United States. And at the time... Um, I knew nothing about this subject. I really wasn't interested in UFOs until I, I saw one. Um, and then I, I wrote to QFOS explaining, you know, uh, telling them the, about the experience, which I go into detail in the book. Um, and I got my letter sent back to me. I guess QFOS at the time didn't exist. Dr. Heineck had 
passed away by this time. I didn't know any of this, but I, I kept the letter and I, I tucked that away. And then um, a few years later when I was able to get, when I had the internet and, and I was able to get online, I started doing research online again. And I started meeting other people that were interested and had experiences similar to mine. And, and that was very helpful. And, and I began researching the topic. Uh, so again, not only was this something that was fueling my spirituality, but also uh, a lot of my research interests uh, started to be uh, channeled down this this UFO uh, sort of theme. <laughs> yeah, which I, I know, like it, it is it is strange, but you know, honestly, since Cosmic Witch came out, and I've talked to a number of people, and people have written to me, and they've said, you know. I, I had a UFO experience and I, I really didn't necessarily connect it to my witchcraft. But then, you know, uh, in particular, one lady I talked to said she had this, this wonderful UFO experience. It was um, uh, around the time of the full moon. And, and a week later, she dedicated herself to the path of, of the moon and the moon goddess. And, uh, and, and now after reading Cosmic Witch, she was saying, you know, I didn't, necessarily put those two together but I mean it happened within a week of each other and now I'm thinking mm, you know <laughs> maybe these uh these experiences that we have in the sky now um and with these little beings are no different than what you know they had centuries ago with uh various spirits and uh goddesses and gods and and the fae and and that sort of thing that maybe this is the same thing but now it's it's modern, you know, it's, it's, uh, our modern mythology for the 21st century and, and going forward. Hmm. Definitely. Just going back to the impossible little man and, and those beings, what did they look like? Um, they would change in, in the book. I talk about one, the first experience I remember was with a little boy who was blue. He, he kind mm. of was like the, the, if you're familiar with the um, story of the, the, the green children of Woolpit, uh, it was kind of like that, but he was blue. Um, other ones looked more like um, they were little humanoids. Uh, some of them looked uh, Caucasian. Um, others were green. Uh, they so they 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 changed somewhat in appearance, um, but they were basically like little humanoids. I would say that um, later on with my UFO and then occult research and, and coming across Aleister Crowley and uh, and the conjuration of the lamb entity, I would say they were similar to that, right? Like a little homunculus. Oh yeah, no, I I remember you mentioning that in the book. I mean. You were very young, obviously, but you, do you remember at the time what you thought they were? At the time, I thought they were like ghosts. I, and, I, and I think it's because, like, first of all, I was reading a lot of Nancy Drew books. So I, had, <laughs> I had some grounding in, 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 in I guess, the, the, that kind of wanting to solve the mystery. But at the same time, I was also, you know, my interest as a little kid was more you know, watching, like I said, Scooby-Doo or, or ghostly type things. I, I also, as an adult too, I do see ghosts, um, but I associated them with something ghostly. Uh, I didn't associate, I didn't really think about UFOs um, at the time because I, it wasn't something that I was 
being really exposed to so or really of an interest to me it wasn't until later that i thought you know and then as a young adult at before the ufo experience I was thinking, you know, oh, maybe, you know, I mean, it was over imagination. You hear about, you know, children with their imaginary friends. Maybe, maybe this is like my imaginary frenemy or something like this. <laughs> I don't know what these are, but because I, I was scared of them. Um, and uh, for the most part, I was scared of them. Uh, but the thing is, is that as after having a UFO experience and then reading about the UFOs, I was able to say, no, this, these weren't like, what you would see with ghosts, you know, the spirits of, 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 of a deceased beloved one. Um, these were like little beings that, that would see more fittingly with, with the idea of how people describe either, um, the Fae in some cases or aliens or little humanoid aliens. Uh, and then because I was having these UFO experiences, um, of which in 2001, I, I actually did see with another person, a large diamond shaped spaceship. Um, that's what it looks like. I don't know if it was a spaceship, but that's what it looked like to me at the time. Um, I now I've had to rethink all those experiences from when I was a kid and think, well, maybe these were not really ghosts. Maybe they were, you know, um, uh, they were aliens or, or, you know, uh, beings associated with the UFO experience. Hmm. And was there, was there a point when you were growing up that you stopped seeing them? Yeah, certainly as a teenager, you know, you start becoming hormonal and your, your interests turn to boys or girls or whichever. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, you know, so, and, and like I said, I, but I was still always drawn to, the mystical arts. I was drawn towards witchcraft and, and particularly astrology, um, which I got very, very interested in. Um, and that I think took up that mind space. Uh, and so at that point I wasn't really having these experiences as I did and the frequency anyway, like I did have str some strange experiences, but not at the frequency I did as a, as, as a child. Um, so I, like I said, for me, it was the, it wasn't until later on when I started having UFO experiences um, that I, I correlated the two together and thinking, okay, well, maybe that's what, what this, what was happening then as a child. So, and then I like I said, I, I call them initiations because when you have something happen like that, that's so shocking um, that takes you so out of what is known and comfortable, you, you have to rethink, you know, what you know about reality itself. So, and that can be, like I said, it can be very painful. You know, it's not an easy process to go through. Mm, definitely. And so when you're, you have, you have this, in, these interests in your life, you're, researching ufos and extraordinary experiences and mm -hmm. how did that influence and and sort of go alongside the, the the path that you had towards becoming a witch well certainly it helped to inform some of my own spiritual practice and my own magic um 
by being able to um, relate to other people and doing research into these experiences. Because when you, when you, you know, you're, you're listening to another person's story and their experience, it can also be very um, uh, inspirational towards what you're doing. So I, I view this all as, as a great learning process. And also there's a, there's a bonding that you feel with other people that have gone through the extraordinary experience along with you. And I find that many people that do have, say, more than one experience or they see ghosts or they've had several experiences with UFOs or whatever, or even the cryptozoology stuff, they tend to be very creative people. Um, and, and their, their way of thinking as well is, is changed. So there is a, you feel a sort of closeness to others, you know, it changes the way we, we view the world, the way we carry ourselves in the world where we become sort of outside of it, much like the witch, you know, the archetypal witch is, is, um, on the margins of society. So are, are generally people that have these paranormal experiences. Mm, I mean, it sounds like they very much informed each other these interests um yeah definitely were they even really separate i mean i'm i'm describing them separately but were they was it just one <laughs> was it just one larger interest that had these facets to it i i think it was the larger i think at one time in my life i would have tried to separate them and try to label them neatly into little categories but i think now i think of it more as an entire life's journey um that in that different experiences informed different ways of, of, of practicing witchcraft and, and informing my spirituality and just basically how I, I live my life. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, and, and that's another reason too why I wrote Cosmic Witches because my path may seem very different, but I do feel that, you know, we all, even if we follow a, a specific path in, in, in spiritually or as a witch, um, we're still bringing into it our own life experiences and who we are. And magic really is coming from inside ourselves. So in, in my case, uh, I would have to say it is the, the, the largest part of my, my life experience that has really informed me have been these UFO experiences. So I wanted to just put that out there and let people know that you know it's okay to just follow your own path and, and this might seem strange on fringe upon very very fringe but <laughs> it is it, it it is what um it's my truth i'm speaking my truth of course now did you i mean did you find that you had to sort of jailbreak yourself from looking too hard for an explanation in, in my own experience as much it feels as though with this kind of thing there probably isn't you're not going to find a, a, a sort of an answer but there's there's lots of different answers or the whole perhaps even part of the reason for this sort of thing existing is is that it's a mystery like that's that's part of it it's it's, it's designed to sort of inspire you and 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 bring out your creative side and think yeah think imaginatively i mean like breadcrumb in, in your own in, yeah in, in your own experience was that something that you you had to learn yourself and and, and not sort of try and, and over explain the things that you were seeing 
Sure. I mean, that's like in, in the beginning, um, well, you know, as, as an adult, as a young adult, when I was first setting out to, to um, do research into these experiences, of course, you know, there's that desire to want to be able to explain them or to come to an end point or an answer. And I realized that that is likely never going to happen. Um, and then that's probably the point of it. It's, I feel that these, whatever the, the other is, and I don't, I, I use the word alien in a very broad sense of the term because I really don't know. Um, I do believe there's another intelligence that is um, orchestrating these experiences and that we potentially are co-creating this um, because experiences are, are different across the board where, wherever you're coming from, you know, depending upon your time and culture and, and who you are, you're going to experience these things in, in many different ways. So I don't think it's necessary to really have a firm label as to what it is. It's just more... Um, you know, like I said, I, I think they're like little breadcrumbs, you know, I think almost like Hansel and Gretel, that it's kind of leading us down a path to understanding that there is a lot more perhaps to our consensus reality than we understand and that we can potentially maybe understand. It also, it also seems to guide us. Like I find with the UFOs, um, when you look back over history, it seems that these technologies, uh, they always seem to be um, just one or two steps ahead of where humanity is at. Like um, with the airships that were seen in the late 1800s, you know, just just predate the airships or uh, these strange rockets that were seen in Sweden were about 10 years before they actually had them developed and done. So, I mean, there's always just out there, just a little bit ahead of humanity. So um, I find that interesting too. And perhaps part of the idea that they're leading us somewhere or it's leading us somewhere to some point, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. They they does seem to be that they're just slightly more advanced than us. I mean, mm -hmm. so I mean, with uh, with with your own sightings, do you go back and and rethink about what you saw and why why you saw what you saw? I mean, what, what do you what sure. do you what do you? I know I know we've just had a conversation where, where we we talk about not really pinning down these things because it's perhaps not even necessary but but do you have an idea about what it was you saw sure i i think that and i i i touch upon this in my writing um one of the things i've become very interested in is because the the nuts and bolts ufo stuff really you know at one point i was more interested in that but i haven't been in many many years and i I think that the Jungian uh, book Flying Saucers really influenced my way of thinking along with Jacques Vallée and others, including Patrick Harpour's uh, Demonic Reality. And I, for my own research now, I look at these cases, including my own, and I look at them almost as a waking dream and using the lenses or the tools of the the eyes of the witch, I look for the symbolic content within the experience itself. Uh, one of the things that struck me about my first experience when I was 23 and I saw that red glowing orb 
in the sky with um, my my brother-in-law is that looking at it and looking thinking the color red and the fact that it was literally almost an octagon shape well that's a stop sign so mm. i was seeing a large stop sign <laughs> in the sky and you know so obviously there's symbolic meaning to that and i find that when i've talked to other ufo witnesses when you start looking at especially the high strangeness the you know the real weird stuff that people don't really necessarily like to report you know to a ufo reporting agency but if if you sit down and talk to them and they realize you're not going to judge which i i don't then you get these really strange strange things that occur and those, you know, like I, all of a sudden, for instance, I've, I've seen this strange thing in the sky and then this fox appears and, uh, you know, it looks translucent and it, and it walks beside me and I take a picture and all there is is a little blob. This is an actual, uh, it didn't happen to me, but it happened to someone who reported to me. And you see something like that and it's it's weird it's high strangeness well what is a fox a fox is a trickster you start looking at perhaps what was going on at the time in this person's life or what they were doing just prior to seeing the ufo and you can start seeing that there is a symbolic story or potentially even a communication from whatever it is the uh, the other the other intelligence that is going on that if you just look at it straight on as an experience, you may not catch that because you're just getting these very basic details. Okay, what have you seen? What is this? And the, but if you look at it, like I said, almost in the in the sense of, of a waking dream, then you can start seeing that there's symbolism and there's hidden meaning and potential communication. And that's really what I'm interested in. Um, when it comes to to the UFOs or even some ghostly things, you know, um, mm. you know, uh, so and, and I write about that as well uh, on my website. I, I did a very lengthy piece on uh, the the Hum ghost, the the woman in black, and and the circumstances surrounding her haunting and why she may be actually symbolic to. Um, the, the first wave of feminism in England at the time when the the ghost began appearing to a young a young woman uh, who was just starting off in med school in the the late nineteenth century, which was you know had quite a bit of difficulties. So <laughs> so that that's a whole other story that we could spend hours talking about. But that's where I'm at when it comes to the UFOs as well is using those tools of the witch. Um, and thinking very symbolically and, and, and not necessarily in a, in a very linear way that you kind of want to put everything into a little box, you know, I, I, I think of it as a right brained approach. Yeah. I mean, I, if you look at it over, over the history of, of humanity, the, the period of time that this sort of phenomena has been seen as being craft from another world is actually I guess quite brief. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, um, uh, like it. I think it go. It can go back a few centuries because I think the first time you you start seeing is the 16th century. These ideas of of somebody on the on on the moon or a, a being mm. on the moon or something of that nature. So there there is that. 
But I think when it comes to these things, even like, you know, a hundred years ago during, during the Spanish flu time in Fatima, for instance, um, where the three children saw this falling sun um, along with, uh, well, they first they saw this apparition of this lady in white who they assumed was the, the Blessed Mother uh, Mary. And then as, as the, these experiences started escalating and the, the word started getting around that, you know, these children were having these experiences, these shepherds out in this field where the pasture where they had kept their sheep, then eventually the large amounts of people came. And at one point, 70,000 people were there and they witnessed what they described as the sun moving erratically and then falling, nearly falling to earth. Well, in modern terms, we can we can describe this as a UFO experience and assume that it's, well, this is an alien spaceship that, you know, was buzzing these poor people. But for them, it was quite a religious experience. So, um, you know, definitely, yeah, I would say the idea that it is spaceships and aliens is relatively new, but the phenomena and how people um experience it is not like even here in um in italy where i live presently there is uh, a cathedral that has um the bones of a dragon now i've seen them and they're they're pretty big i don't know what animal they came from or where they came from potentially a mammoth i don't know but they say these are the bones of a dragon now Apparently, this dragon had been menacing this village, and these priests shot it down. And there's a relic of the weapon, the holy weapon that they used to shoot down this dragon. But if you take the story and you just insert alien and spaceship and things, it really does begin to sound like a modern story of, of, a, of a shooting down of, of an alien spaceship. Okay, so these stories have been with us for probably millennia, maybe even longer. And it there's something there. There is an intelligence there. Um, it, it may even be coming from inside ourselves. To be honest, I really, I don't know. But um, but it has been. And and yes, it's it seems to be progressing as we progress. Um, with technologies, it, it seems to be, its myths tend to be progressing as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I try, I always find that within mythology and creation stories for different cultures, there are, there might be clues about, about sort of the, <laughs> the nature of reality. I often find that a creation story, quite a lot of the time, the elements of a, of a world will exist, like so a sea might exist or the land might exist, but they they aren't unif they aren't together. They they form some sort of relationship. So yes. the, the 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 sea might form a relationship with the earth, or or mm -hmm. the earth with the sky, or something. But these things already exist. It's yes. just that they're not. It's not a world yet. It's not a planet. I I find that really interesting. I I wonder if that's sort of a trying to describe the moment. Of, going from being non-material to going being material and mm -hmm. i really think time's important as well i feel as though time is sort of crucial to 
to our material reality and maybe in a non-material world where time perhaps doesn't exist. If you try to describe a world where time doesn't exist, it might sound like the, the landscape that's described at the very beginning of creation stories. And maybe they're, mm-hmm. maybe they're trying to explain the, a world from where time doesn't exist to one where it does. Exactly. I, I don't know. That's what I'm... <laughs> yeah, these are the big questions, you know. And then, and then when you look at various creation myths, um, many of them all have very similar elements. I mean, certain aspects might change or the names of certain beings may change, but in the end, there's, um, there's lines that connect all of these various ways of thinking. Um, including with indigenous people in North America um, who have their own creation stories and that, which I find really interesting in, in the creation stories of um, the Aboriginal people of uh, Australia, yeah, which are yeah. really interesting with the dream time and that. Um, I think there's truths in all of these things because we're all, we're all connected as, as human beings um, and through our planet you know, and, uh, and I think there are greater truths in there. And I, and I also think like one of the things that I talk about in the cosmic, Witch is, uh, the importance of, um, nature and our planet and how we're at this point, uh, in time, um, where we really need to start taking care of our mother earth. And at the same time, you see this, um, revival in witches and, and pagans and people that are, choosing um, nature-based spirituality. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that that's just uh, a coincidence that this is happening at this, at this point in time, just like with the UFOs, which are all over the news now, um, maybe not as much as in, in Europe, but we're certainly getting the American news and, you know, they're talking about UFOs. Um, there's a resurgence in, in, in interest in the occult and mysticism. And I think this is all coming together at a very unique point in time for humanity. Very interesting point anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. It feels like, I, I think the term is a, a re-enchantment. Yeah. At least if people, I think that the, our, our planet has always been enchanted. The, the cosmos is enchanted. I think that the way... Uh, in Western society, anyway, the way we've been living is purposefully disenchanting us. And this is why I think we, we, we've been having a lot of problems. I think we've gotten too far away from nature and, and, and too far away from our own humanity because of it, you know. Um, and, but I think that that's changing. I, I, I do have a lot of hope in the younger generations and that, I think are a lot smarter than my generation anyway, <laughs> in that they're, they're a lot more with it. They, they know a lot more about what's happening uh, in, on the planet. And, and, and that gives me some hope, you know? Hmm. Um, in, in your book, you have chapters that talk about the items that someone can use in a magical practice. And some of the, some of the models of, of magic, that are used around the world. When you were starting your own magical practice, how did you do that? What was a sort of a, a starting point for you? I guess for me, it's, uh, I just began, um, well, because at the time, you know, growing, when I was growing up, 
there was no internet. So it, it was a lot difficult. And unless you were living like in a major city, uh, it was far, kind of hard to find an occult shop or a bookshop where you could, <laughs> or even other people that, you know, were interested in this, in this sort of thing. Um, it was, it's not like today it was, it was rather difficult. So I think a lot of the things I intuited for myself, I learned actually how to um, read playing cards, do divination with playing cards for my grandmother, um, who, uh, you know, she wouldn't, she was a Christian woman. She wouldn't have identified herself as a witch, but she, she did do um, a lot of divination and, and things like that with these playing cards and tea leaves and things, which I do think that she learned while living um, in a displaced persons uh, camp during the second world war uh, here in, in, uh, in Germany at the time. And, uh, and, she, and she learned from displaced uh, Roma people uh, how to do these things. So I, I kind of picked up on that. I had a natural interest in astrology. Um, so I would go to the library and I would get Derek and Julia Parker's uh, giant compendium of astrology. And I started doing charts when I was like 15, 16, um, getting into tarot and such. So it, it just sort of morphed itself as a practice um, until, you know, I was able to um, get a hold of, of uh, Starhawk's book, uh, start looking at um, uh, Wicca as, as an inspiration. Um, but I've always been, a, a because I'm a very eclectic Aquarian type, I, I've always preferred kind of doing my own thing in a very spontaneous way um, working with different spirits, mostly my local spirits, um, different deities that have called out to me in synchronistic ways, um, and incorporating my knowledge of UFOs and the cosmos and that into the witchcraft. So it's kind of a, a soup of, of stuff that I've put together for a very eclectic kind of practice that just, it works for me. <laughs> so. I'm curious about the the magical items that you have. I, I imagine just having a mortar and pestle, mm -hmm. it just makes you feel more like a witch because you, you know, because it's this cool little thing, and it's sort of a, you know, if you ask somebody to describe the items in a in a witch's parlor, they say, well, they have, they've got a mortar and pestle, um, they wear a pointy hat, um, got broom. a robe, and and which is all very cool. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I I love that kind of thing. I really do. I. I, just, I wonder. I wonder for you was that part of it, just to sort of you know, if you um, if you if you dress the part and look the part, you're gonna that helps. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, no, it does because it it literally takes us out of our um, reality and puts us into the mind space where magic can happen. You really, I I say in the book when in the tools section that the most important tool that a witch has is herself because the magic is really coming from within ourselves we it's our will that is being focused and whatever works whether it's it's working with a coven of other witches or being on your own or being drawn to plants or shamanic practice a lot of what i do is trance and shamanic type stuff um I, I, I channel my, my magic into my art, but I certainly do like working with candles. I observe the Sabbaths, um, but that, that's what works for me. So yeah, definitely it's, but 
in the end, it's all theater. It's, it's what works for the individual witch. The most important tool a witch has is herself or himself. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do have, uh, I, I have some beautiful crystals that I work with sometimes um, for divination, various tarot cards. I incorporate them into my spell work. Um, uh, I have a little besom, a little broom that I handmade. Um, and I try to work with things that I, I source locally here. Uh, I live in a small village in uh, North Italy in the mountains. And so I'm surrounded by beautiful nature and, and ancient civilization and such. So I'm very inspired by what I have just here locally uh, that I incorporate into my, my daily practice. So, and that includes, um, you know, I, I, I light a candle each day. I sing to the local spirits, my house spirits for keeping me safe in this space. Um, so I, I'm, I'm humble that way. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't work with, with, with grand uh, deities all the time, but, uh, but that's what, that's basically my tools, including in the living plants that I have um, that are on my altar. So it, it just, it depends. I change my altar. I have more than one, the altar outside, two inside. So it just, it depends on, on what I feel like. I have wand as well that a, a lovely magician friend from uh, the UK made for me. So I use that sometimes. Um, I like the theater, but I do, you know, it is theater, but I, I like it all. I do. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds lovely. Um, how do you work with with spirits and, and deities? I mean, I, I imagine that it's quite a complex thing you learn over time. But can you just describe a little bit about how you identify the spirits and the deities that you wanted to work with? Yeah, well, the spirits that I I tend to work with are the local spirits, the spirits of the house itself, and and um. The villa that we have, uh, we purchased uh, through synchronicity. Um, we had been just passing through this small little village on the way to another uh, historic site. We weren't looking for a house at the time, but um, I, when I we came to this little village, I saw uh, the apparition of a person and they were pointing to a sign. And at the time, I, I didn't have any Italian language and the sign said Vendesse, and I don't know why, but because the apparition was pointing to it, and, and there was that feeling deep inside, you've got to take a picture, you've got to take it. So I took a picture of this, this villa with this sign, and then about a year later, um, you know, I was talking to my husband, and, and we were looking for a house, and I said, you know, I took this picture, and it said Vendessi and, and I knew at that point it meant for sale. And I, I went through all my phone photos. I showed it to him and, you know, it still happened to be on sale. And <laughs> this is the house we ended up moving into. And it was all these circumstances related to this apparition. And then later on, I found out it was the apparition of the former owner um, who had passed away. And we bought we bought the house from his his wife and he had built a lot of the a lot of the newer addition into this villa he had put in himself and i guess he really wanted someone who um would love his home the way he did so we ended up buying this home um and in in and i view that as a way of working with spirits so the spirits sometimes they will 
they will come out and call out to you if they need you. Um, and, and also there's these synchronicities for me when it, when there's a deity or something, and I, I keep having these uh, synchronicities and strange experiences. Um, maybe it could be a dream that, um, you know, I'm seeing a specific goddess or I'm seeing a specific word in my mind all the time. And then I'll start reading about it, this, this specific spirit, or I'll find something and I'll say, okay, it's you. And then that's how I start working with them. They kind of choose you as well. So, but for the most part, no, I, I spend a lot of time in nature. I listen to the spirits. I listen to the, uh, the sounds of the nature and I can hear them speaking to me in that sense. And, and then I work with them that way. It's, it's um, mutual respect. Right. Okay. I mean, yeah, do you think... It's kind of mutual thing. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you think when most people... I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this this podcast will have had that thing happen in their home where mm-hmm. they're looking for something and they just mm-hmm. can't find it. And then mm-hmm. they eventually do find it and it's somewhere that they've checked. Is that the house spirit just being a bit, yeah. bit naughty? Sometimes they're very naughty, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, or if you, you make a bargain with the spirit and then you break that bargain, well, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they can be very naughty. They can be, you know, of course. So, you know, you've got to, you know, I, I, and then sometimes they're just being cheeky. So I would suggest if something like that happens, you just kindly ask and say, you know, please, like, can you return my item? Or if you're having some strange experiences, like it, you know, three o'clock in the morning, you're hearing banging or this or that, and you just, you know, say, Hey, you know, I, I can live with you, but I got to get my sleep. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, I I do say that, that these things are all usually related to, uh, the house spirits either being cheeky or maybe perhaps something, um, uh, a person that's passed on that wants to get a message to you or wants to get your attention. It can be that as well. Um, you know, so yeah, no, no. I remember a while ago, I I wanted to have my headphones for work so I could like listen to music and, and stuff. And I couldn't find them. I was sure they were in my, I put them in my bag mm-hmm. the, the night before and they weren't there at all. And I couldn't find them anywhere. And I just, I went to work in a huff and I just was getting, I just stopped on my walk to work and said, look, please, can you just give my headphones back? <laughs> and then I looked in my bag and, and they were there. And they're like, oh, sure. I hope you said thank you. <laughs> I did. Oh no, of course yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, they'll they'll, so. they'll take them again. Then you'll never see them. <laughs> <laughs> no, so far yeah. so good, Touchwood. But no, that's that's yeah. really interesting. And with your, I mean, with your surname as well, I I imagine that you um, work with Demeter. Demeter. Yeah, Demeter. Yeah. Demeter. Sorry. Um, yeah. It. No, that's fine. People make that that mistake all the time, and they're like, "Well, it's no, it's Demeter, like the goddess." Yeah, that was. It was very strange growing up with that name, and of course, then I had to learn a lot about Greek mythology because people would ask about it. Be, oh wow, and you know, but my sister her my mother named her diana so she's got the double goddess so yeah yeah she's got the double goddess thing happening um and i i I mention her as well in the book 
Um, but uh, yeah, it, it having that name, having the because the names are so important, right? So being the namesake of a goddess. Uh, it has some very unique power that goes behind it, as well as it can be um, a bit draining at times. This is a very powerful goddess. Um, and uh, but all in all, like by the time I was a teenager, I thought, oh, wow, you know, like it's a pretty cool name. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I had a lot of people ask about that. Um, when I was a kid, you know, the teachers and things at school. Oh, your name's Demeter? Yeah, no, it really is. We <laughs> like, know she was a goddess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and then I, as well, and I, I, I talk about um, my daughter, uh, Stephanie. And when she was born, she was born on the first day of spring. And I really, really was tempted to name her Persephone. But then I thought, you know, Persephone Demeter, that's kind of weird. But... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she probably she you know and that's a lot that's a lot of heavy um goddess channeling so um so i called her stephanie it would definitely affect your sense of self i think just with those such powerful names yeah definitely and as a first name because you know you're you're hearing that all the time people are speaking your first name to you all the time so um i thought no i i I would not, I wasn't going to put her, put Persephone in there, but she was born um, on the first day of spring. So that as I had her, um, that wasn't lost on me that, oh, wow, you know, my name's Demeter and I'm having a, 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 a little girl on the first day of spring because <laughs> it fits the mythology, right? And Demeter yeah, yeah. and her, um, uh, you know, because Persephone was uh you know, went away to the underworld. Uh, and then so comes the fall and winter, you know, as, as Demeter mourns her, her daughter. And then as she returns the first day of spring, it's all happy again. Everything's all growing, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, but it's very interesting. The Greek mythology is very interesting, for sure. Yeah, I mean, with, with, with Demeter, there's, uh, there's those, is it the Eleusinian mysteries? That's something that's, yes. that's really interesting. I don't know much about them, but I know that they're, yeah. they're, they're a sort of a, f- a festival connected to, to Demeter. Definitely, and, and um, the, the priestesses uh, and that, that would be involved in um, gaining divination and, and worshipping of, of Demeter as a goddess. Definitely, yeah. And then because she's also, um, she is uh, related to Ecate, who who helped guide her into the underworld looking for Persephone, uh, Ecate being uh, the goddess of witches and um, the moon. And, you know, she's a triple goddess. She's a goddess of ghosts and magic as well. So yeah, She's one of my favorites, Persephone, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, per, so, so through um, Ecate and... Um, and Persephone, Demeter is also, uh, I guess, considered in part a death goddess, which is very interesting for me. I've always had a fascination with that. And these are the goddesses that most call out to me are the death goddesses. And I do also see um, a potential relationship between uh, the afterlife and UFOs, um, which I think now in in the UFO sort of subculture with Whitley Strieber and others, people are more um, 
open to the idea that UFOs could have a definite connection to the afterlife. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So I see all those connections in there as well. Hmm. It's, it's interesting you say that I've, I've, I, I hadn't really thought about that very much, but recently I, I got a book called, um, um, a for Adamski, mm-hmm. which is all about the sort of the, the contactee movement yeah. in America. And there was a guy, um, a guy called Wayne Aho, mm-hmm. um, who he, he's not very well known in this, in ufology at all. And because he, he, he didn't really do a whole bunch, but one thing that did, did, kind of stand out for me is that he was working in a forest in the Pacific Northwest and he had a UFO experience and he said that the the UFO communicated to him and he asked them who they were and and they told him we are the guardians of the dead <laughs> which um that that's that stood out for me because I I was I'd heard people you know I'd heard in other podcasts people are talking about this connection between UFOs and and the afterlife and and then yeah but I, I read that and it just really stood out for me I, I, I definitely do think there's a a connection there oh definitely there have been um contactees who have described um meeting uh their beloved dead on on UFOs or on spacecraft uh there's the the nation of Islam uh, in the United States with Louis Farrakhan, which is a, a UFO, almost religion. And uh, they also would see um, dead relatives. Uh, Louis Farrakhan described seeing um, dead dead people that he had known in life in on the mothership. So there is there seems to be, and then of course Whitley Strieber is now writing about the afterlife revolution and um, with his wife, Anne, who passed away. And of course, there's that huge connection there through uh, communion to the UFOs. Um, yeah, so the, there definitely seems to be something there, as well as the the connections between near-death experience and UFOs that's explored by Kenneth Ring. Um, he wrote The Omega Project, which I think is uh, probably the seminal work on the topic at the moment. Um, on the idea that that near-death experience and and alien abduction are very, very similar in content. And and so all of these things, I think, have an interrelation, at least in in the mechanism, and including with magic. Um, I think that that what fuels these experiences also fuels the the magic that, uh, you know, witches and, and, and occultists uh, and people like myself use to um, shape reality into what we want. Mm. I mean, um, along family lines as well. The, I know I in my last episode, I, I talked with Ralph Blumenthal, who's a, a journalist who's written a, a biography of John Mack, who did a lot of work with um, abduction experiences. And, and he found that 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 phenomenon happened along family lines as well. They, yeah, they, they would report that their their parents and grandparents would would report that they'd had similar experiences. Mm-hmm. It it there seems to be that component there that it and it's 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 funny you mention that because um, 
you know, as a young adult, I started telling my parents about these experiences and my mother had a near death experience. Um, when she was a child, she also, um, saw a little pan like creature when she was a teenager, she had her own, uh, experiences with the ghostly realm and seeing people who had passed over. Uh, my father had an experience with uh, a UFO in the 1950s in the Gulf of Mexico when he was deep sea fishing. Uh, and all of these things kind of came out after, um, you know, I, I was able to, to start relating my experiences to my parents and, and other people in my family that were all, yeah, they had strange experiences too. So, I do think that there is that component that it, whatever it is, it, it can be stronger in certain families, you know, maybe even skipping a generation, but it's, it's definitely there. Mm, mm, definitely. We're, we're almost out of time, but before I end, I, you have a, you're writing a second book at the moment, which um, is yeah. a continu- sort of a, a continuation of, from Cosmic Witch, but it's, it's titled Conjuring UFOs. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what we can expect from from that book yeah well with that book that's going to be like a little bit of opening up the um the cosmic grimoire uh this is going to be me talking about experiments i've i've conducted um using occult tools to invoke and and uh, provoke experiences with the phenomena and in which case i I have written them up almost as scientific uh, experiments, and they are um, inspired by the work in part of A.R.G. Owen and his wife Iris of the Toronto Psychical Research Society and their conjuring Philip, where uh, in the 1970s, they uh, got a group of people who um, were unknown to each other before them, they were creative types, but they were all from different backgrounds. And they got them to come in and create a fictional ghost story. And from that fictional ghost story, they used um, seance techniques, uh, particularly like the old Victorian parlor seance techniques, to try and invoke the spirit that they created, this fictional spirit, and they did have some some really good results. They they never were able to manifest a full apparition, which I think was their goal. But they they were able to um, create all sorts of poltergeist like activity, including the table where they were having their sitting was levitating. Uh, they had uh, knocks and raps, so the ghost was communicating with them. They they figured out the a communication for you know one knock being uh, yes, two knocks being no, kind of thing. And all of this was recorded. It was recorded by local television. Uh, they even uh, went uh, traveled as a group from Toronto to Ohio State University, where a group of physicists were trying to measure the knocks um, because they, they're physical, physical sound to to see if what they could learn from that. So I found this very interesting, and I was able to meet with uh, one of the scientific directors of that. Uh, experiment um, before he passed away, Dr. Joel Wheaton in Toronto, and I was able to interview him and get ideas for my own work, which is more uh, UFO oriented. 
And I have been, since that time, I've been working on various experiments that is similar to the Conjuring Up Philip experiment, but with a, with a UFO uh, theme. And I'm going to be discussing that and other experiments that people have tried as well um, in conjuring and invoking uh, contact with the, uh, as I said, alien in the most broadest sense of the term, but the alien other. And so that's, that book is going to be about that. It's going to be um, sort of magical techniques and, and experimentation with psi. Uh, psychic processes and uh, the manifestation of UFOs. Wow. I mean, can you talk a little bit about conjuring a UFO? I mean, how, how does that work? Are, are you with the, so with the Philip experiment, for example, that I think they, they gave him the narrative of being a, an old English Lord who died in the civil war. So, yeah. so with, with the work you're doing, are, are you, are you kind of giving the UFO that you, you want to conjure some sort of identity, a craft or something like that? What we, we initially, I, I considered trying to do this with a gray alien, but because a gray alien is like, I mean, with a ghost, even a fictional ghost, it's still a human being. So yeah. it's less scary in my opinion than something that's completely alien that is not necessarily human and because abductees many of them have had such horrible uh, experiences and and they have had post-traumatic stress i didn't want to do anything that might be unethical Hmm. you know in trying to create a trying to do the exact same thing using a gray alien i tried different ideas like approaches thinking to myself well maybe if we made the alien friendly or maybe he he would have an accident or something. One of these, you know, because you hear about these spaceships crashing, and then he might need us to to find him up something that he would need to repair his ship, and we could then be able to command him to go away. But no matter how I thought about doing something like that, it just it didn't seem right to me. So more we've been working on. Um, creating uh to see if we can create a ufo event using um you know psychic like uh, techniques to to do so so similar to what they were doing with uh philip but also um using fiction fictional narrative to um drive a story to see if we can create an outward effect in the outward world where someone may report seeing a ufo um, where we were directing it to. So, and I've tried various techniques with um, various levels of success in different groups of people. So the book is going to be about that, about um, the conjuration of UFOs and experimentation similar to Philip. Wow, that's, that sounds fascinating. I, I, I look forward to, to reading more about it. I mean, do you think that there have been reports of things crashing and things being recovered by the military. Mm-hmm. Could it be that someone tried to conjure something and it went wrong? I mean, I, I'm sure I've heard that, that there's an idea that that Roswell happened because because of something that Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard did. They did a ritual sure. in the desert yeah. and that sort of that went wrong <laughs> or it went right. I don't know. And, and that, you know, that set forth what happened and something crashed. I mean... That is something that interests me. Do, do you think that 
fantastically magical artifacts could could be brought into our reality through through magic and and somewhere in, oh. and somewhere in a vault there's this thing that's just existing now because someone brought it through from the sort of the, the non-material realm or whatever you want to call it oh absolutely i believe that that's most likely the case is that it's something and it's not whatever has happened is is going to be outside of um what we would expect in in our known reality um in this physical realm that we're it's our day-to-day reality that we all kind of live in it's it's outside of that um certainly and if you look at some of these uh, investigators um particularly jacques valet who just uh wrote the trinity the best kept secret with uh paula harris uh, which is about a crash uh, similar to Roswell, but happened um, uh, earlier. And it was uh, closer to where they were doing the first nuclear bomb tests um, that these people, uh, they were very much, uh, certainly Valet and Heineck became Rosicrucians. They they were studying the occult. And I don't think that there's, um, you know, that that's just a, a coincidence either. I think there's a very good reason and they understand why they were doing that because there's a definite connection to the same processes, I believe, that drive magic and magical workings as there is to these um, uh, strange experiences. Um, I, I don't know what it is that they may have that they certainly seems that they they do have they have something that they probably don't know what it is or they can't decipher at this point mm. you know mm, yeah yes yeah. fascinating yeah like i mean it's it's interesting because like with a lot of this stuff with the physical i was very interested you know about 15 years ago in in the physical trace aspects of the ufos and there are especially when there are reports of landed ufos there are physical traces, but these traces all seem to be have a mundane origin. So for a while, I got very interested in, well, what were these things? Like there was one in Ontario at a time where there was all this um, steel mill strikes. And uh, there was, a, I think there was a, a problem worldwide with oil. And the UFO that landed and was witnessed by these children and then flew off, left this black substance on the ground where it was. And then later UFO investigators collected it and it turned out it was oil. Well, I don't think that they're burning, you know, petroleum products to to cross a universe. (laughs) So you can't just take this straight up. But again, if you look at this, the symbolism behind what's being found and how it's displayed and, and that there might be some clues into what's going on there. I do feel that all these experiences have a strong message for the individual and for societies at large, you know. Um, like, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the major UFO flaps, the, the, the waves, they all seem to come at times of, uh, crisis, 
you know, um, like the, the, the Belgian UFO waves of the 1990s at the same time in, in, you know, the former Soviet Union was collapsing and they were also having multiple, multiple UFO reports or the UFOs during um, the World War II where each one thought it was the other side. They remind me of the Tic Tacs of today, these Tic Tac UFOs that they talk about in the States in that people are saying, oh, well, they must be, you know, exotic technology from another side. But I have to wonder if Russians and Chinese are, are seeing these things and they're saying, oh, maybe this is an Americans doing this, <laughs> you know? It reminds me so much of the Foo Fighters. And I think overall, there is a very strong message here from the, the alien other uh, for us. And, and maybe it, you know, with their interest in, in the nukes and that, maybe it's, you know, you got to start taking care of your planet. You got to stop what you're doing and, and, and why you're moving towards these, these types of technologies, you know, maybe it's that, and that true could be coming from inside ourselves, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, a really good way to describe it. I, there is part of me that wonders if, if nuclear weapons, especially are just, are just a, a level of destruction that. It doesn't just affect, you know, the material realm. It affects the non-material realm, and I suppose yeah. they maybe, maybe in some way, there there does seem to be a relationship between these two. So mm-hmm. I doubt that the annihilation of a society in in the material realm would do any favors to to the other side, to the counterparts. Exactly. The, yeah. So, so and and the, the that type of I think that type of that reaction is like is it, it's um it's not fusion it's fission it's it's breaking the bonds of of matter you're it's a very damaging ag- aggressive way of, of getting at this energy it's, so maybe as well there's something something there mm-hmm. i think it's perhaps as well it's just damaging to a non-material realm yeah exactly exactly but there's definitely, there's, um, you know, the contactees uh, early on were talking, they were ha- having these environmental messages that were being given to them by the aliens. And um, this still continues to this day. So I think there's something there that, you know, we should, we should heed it. We should, we should maybe start paying attention and listening to the, you know, what we're being told, both um, symbolically and telepathically. And through the experiences of what we see in the skies. Hmm. That's a very thoughtful way to end this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me and, and uh, for reading my book. <laughs> no, uh, Susan, I thank you for being a guest on the podcast. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you so much. I hope to get a chance to talk to you again sometime. That would be wonderful. If people want to find out more about you and your work and how to get a hold of Cosmic Witch, how best do they do that? Okay, well, my website is Susan Demeter, D-E-M-E-T-E-R dot com. 
so all lowercase, susandemeter.com. The book is Cosmic Witch, Magic, Witchcraft, and the Supernatural. You can order that through a local bookshop, which I, I really would appreciate because I'm all about supporting local business if you can. Um, it is available on Amazon as well. Uh, you know, so if you want to read the book, it really is a good introduction to um, witchcraft and inspiring towards uh, different paths. And and um, and I, I also get an uh, environmental message as well in the book, as, as well as talking about supernatural and, and how um, witchcraft and magic and science are not as far apart as we might think. So I think there's something in there for everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I loved it. I, it was a great read. Thank you. No, not at all. Thank you, Susan. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Ever since I heard about Cosmic Witch, I knew Susan would be a great guest for the podcast. And so it has turned out to be. The concepts and cosmologies that you find within witchcraft and magical traditions can be really useful when it comes to trying to understand the nature of paranormal phenomena, or more precisely, how your relationship with it might work. I heartily recommend getting a hold of Susan's book, if this thing is your kind of jam. As ever, please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen, and sharing it on social media, as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter, at spherical underscore pod, and subscribe on all good podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someofthesphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Some Other Sphere will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.